Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. Today is November 14th. Uh, with me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. Um, so I figure, why don't we, why don't, before we get into what we're going to be talking about today, I'm sure many of you can imagine what we're going to be speaking about today. Uh, Laura, why don't you just get the housekeeping out of the way and we'll get started. Yeah, of course. So really the big thing is just tune in this Thursday. We're having a special episode specifically geared towards writers. We're going to be going through and workshopping people's first pages Mm -hmm. of their novels that were submitted to us specifically for this. Um, if you have a first page that you want to have critiqued, you still have time to send it to us. Yeah. Send it to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Just a note that this is something we're going to be trying to do every month, but will be just for our Patreon supporters after this month. So if you like it and you listen, then you should uh, come and support us on Patreon.com. It'll be it'll be similar to the query episode in that we're going to just be picking a handful of first pages that got submitted to us and really going line by line and kind of talking about things that are working, things that aren't, um, and just you know working on the various things that get agents to quit reading your pages, that get them interested. Um, you know, it's another it's another craft episode, and we're excited about them because we feel like they're going to really help. Writers, as opposed to just people who you know listen to the show, which we're hoping is <laughs> more than just writers. Um, but yeah, I, I think it'll be a good episode. And like like Laura mentioned, um, after we do, you know, we did the query episode last week or a couple weeks ago, and we're going to be doing this this week. And then um, those craft specific writer episodes will be available to subscribers. Absolutely. So um, we might as well we might as well get to it, huh? Um, how how are you feeling? Well, this this <clears throat> past week or so has been really tough. I think yeah. it's been tough for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, the the election didn't quite go the way that most people were expecting, mm-hmm. and it means a lot of things, a lot of very potentially scary things. Uh, so so finding that and and kind of making peace with it has been has been hard. So, I mean, that's the thing, right, is we (laughs) – obviously things did not go in the way that we expected, as many people expected. Um, And we – you know, we're not going to sit here on this show and present a bunch of answers because we we don't have them and it's not really our platform to talk about them. But what we can do, I think, today is provide a space for, um, you know, specifically – you know, just book people to kind of think through and talk about, and we're going to kind of work through a lot of it on the air, you know? I mean, just talk about some of the ramifications that um, a President Trump, man, (laughs) (laughs) um, that that Donald Trump might have on the book publishing industry, on how, you know, this sort of right-wing conservative movement taking the hold that it has, um, what that might do to uh, book publishing as a whole, what ramifications that'll have on various bits of of our world, you know, the world that you and I know and that, you know, our listeners are invested in. So, um, you know, there's obviously a million ways to think about all this. And, you know, we've there's been so much writing and so much hand-wringing and all these things that have happened since uh, last Tuesday. But um, we figure we're going to talk about the book stuff because that's that's who we are and that's the kind of space we want to be. And and at the end of the day, it's it's important. Yeah, because and, books are where ideas live. Right, and we're so we're going to do our best here 
thinking about how this sort of change in the American, you know, political landscape could affect books, writing, um, I don't know, things like that, because we think there will be some changes or we think there will at least be some, I don't know, situations that'll, that will arise, some problems that will arise, and we can decide if book publishing is up to the challenge or not, I guess is the best way to put so, it. So let's talk about some of those changes. Yeah, let's, um, I mean, let, let's, just, let's just get into it. I mean, specifically, I, I'm really wondering, Eric, about, you know, based on what we've seen of Trump, you know, before he was a candidate <clears throat> and when he was a candidate, and now what we know of his behavior. Yeah. How does it relate to books and people that work in books and then content just in, in a larger sense? Well, so if we're starting with – I mean I think the place to start with him and with his administration and with this movement that he's kind of been now backed by. I mean let, let's start with what we know, what we know about him, what we've seen from him. You know, Before we, you and I go about and we're going to – you know, talk about things that might happen, things that could happen, you know, some various kind of opaque prediction-based stuff. Um, let's talk about what we've seen. And I think the place to start for that is... The I mean, First it, Amendment? Yeah. It's <laughs> very, very simply uh, Donald Trump versus the free press. Um, you know, this is a guy who has, has treated the First Amendment with um, hostility, to, to put it lightly. Yeah, in in May of 2016, yeah, which was not go, too many months right, ago, let's go through some of this. Uh, stuff, huh? Trump held a press conference and he personally attacked members of the media. Um, February, just a few months before that, he said, and this is a direct quote: "I'm going to open up our libel laws so that they write so so when they write purposefully negative and horrible and false articles, we can sue them and win lots of money." Yeah, that's that's good. On top of that, <laughs> it was just super good. On top of that, he's been threatening to sue pretty much everyone in the media, specifically the New York Times. The New York Times is very famous for having this. Who has stood up to him in their own way. Has stood up yeah. to him. You know, uh, he. It, on a public, I mean, yeah, they've stood up to him on a you're not going to bully us into what we're saying kind of way. I mean, they've, you know. But. Yeah. So I, I think really. Like when we come down to it, it really comes to just a fundal, a fundamental misunderstanding of what the First Amendment means, <laughs> uh, and it's and it's freedom of the press. And so what that means is it it gives the press leave to say anything. And it, and of course it's it's not if leave it's not to say, so leave to say anything that has factual merit. Yes, I mean, and so if like it is he... not, then you can sue them for libel <clears throat> or slander. Right. Um. But saying mean things is not, not that is right. not liable, and it's well, not so, I slander. Well, so he, he had that. He has that. You know, an infamous tweet about about the freedom of the press, where he you know was whining and says, "It's not freedom of the press when newspapers and others are allowed to say and write whatever they want, even if it is completely false." Exclamation point. And he, <laughs> yes, lots of exclamation points. And he's right about that. That is true. Like, it is not fair for people to write things that are completely false about him. Now, the problem is that the things people are writing about him are not completely false. They're um, most, fair, I mean, mostly, mostly true. Mostly it's just reported journalism, which seems to be the thing that he's against. Um, and now, so to me, this wouldn't be that much of a problem if it wasn't for – because I don't really – Donald Trump doesn't really strike me as someone who now that he has what he wants is that interested in – 
you know, litigating every little thing he said. I mean, I know that he's, like, petty and is vengeful and all those things, but, like, he's got, you know, there's a lot of other things competing for his attention, but he's brought some people on board. Um, You know, he's got Peter Peter Thiel uh, on board, which which gets back at, you know, kind of an alarming instance of this sort of behavior earlier this year. a little bit of background. Peter Thiel is the um, sort of secret backer of the Hulk Hogan lawsuit from 2012. So basically, Gawker Media uh, published a very small section of Hulk Hogan's sex tape, which, yeah. you know, whether or not that's reprehensible, it doesn't really matter. Peter Thiel funded the lawsuit. Three years later, in 2015, Hogan won $140 million, and Gawker declared bankruptcy and sold. So Gawker Media, their website, closed automatically. Um, So so Peter Thiel has has a very recent background. He has a very recent victory over the free press. Absolutely. He's won this fight that we all thought was so sacred and so protected by the First Amendment. I mean, he— he won and he shut it down and now he's he's part of team trump and and that's i mean that's alarming right in its own way and i guess um i guess you know and amazon now is involved i mean i know that you found you know an instance you know um jeff bezos bezos i don't know how the hell it doesn't matter it doesn't matter i mean Um, whether you like him or not yeah yeah yeah. he he tweeted congratulations to trump this week yeah and um, that was newsworthy. Is the eye, yeah, the eye for one, am giving him my most open mind and wish him great success to his service to um to his service of the country. And it's like, well, there's probably a reason for that, right? Is there a reason, Laura, why Jeff Bezos is <laughs> well, pledging yes. allegiance to our uh, new overlord? There's two reasons. Yeah. One, Bezos owns the Washington Post, uh-huh. which has been threatened yeah, multiple been, times by yeah, lawsuits from Trump. Yeah. And second of all, um, well, I guess it's connected to the first, really is that Trump has threatened Bezos and the companies that he owns with multiple lawsuits. Since Trump's victory, Amazon, Amazon Amazon.com, the behemoth that everyone loves to hate, their stock has dropped 6% because their investors are worried that Trump is going to make good on his promises. And I think it's, that's a that's a theme. Throughout, it is, and I think like honestly, so so yeah. the agency that Eric and I are part of, we are members of the Authors Guild because they're awesome and they're and they're really really great at yeah. advocating for writers. Right. They sent out an email at the end of last week about what what Trump means for writing and the world and they talk about a lot of things yeah but the really big thing that that came to me in that email Mm -hmm. was that they're really worried about the speak free act yeah which is pending legislation and it's legislate it's national legislation that's based off of many 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 states their current legislation and basically what this does is it allows federal courts to dismiss unfounded lawsuits that were filed solely to punish people for speaking out. So these lawsuits actually have a name. They're called slap suits. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just ridiculous. So it stands it stands for strategic lawsuits against public participation. Uh Um, So what that what I guess what that means and not legalese is that somebody says something, you know, like the free press, the New York Times runs an article about Trump assaulting women and it's well researched and whatever, but he's a public figure. Right. Um, That's public participation. 
the the slap suits are suits that are completely unfounded legally, but are put together, put there to basically bankrupt the person doing it. So to dissuade people from doing it for a financial reason. Right. And so this legislation is put in place to 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 make that, you know, not a financial burden on the people that are participating in the world and in in the, you know, in free speech, in yeah. in journalism, etc. They're really worried that this is going to be fucked up. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like this is the means through which he can discourage people from criticizing him, even if it's valid. You know, he can make it so not worth someone's while to come after them. And, I mean, when you think about – so, I mean, the ramifications here and the the thing, you know, that's relevant to us is that it's going to make it really tough to write negative things about him. In the book world, if it's, this is, it's gonna, there's gonna be a lot of hedging because it's gonna, it's, it's gonna, it just, it's never every single time you try to do it, there's gonna be some sort of um, cost benefit analysis you have to run. Like, is it worth writing this thing? You know, is it worth really taking the shot? Because even if I'm right, and even if I've run my journalistic p's and q's, there's, you know, it's gonna be a pain in the ass to do it. And yeah. it's going to be expensive, and it's yeah. going to be scary, yeah. and I'm going to open myself up to criticism. <clears throat> right. So, let, I mean, when we've so there's a good example of this yeah, that so happened the, this week. Yeah. So, uh, Megan Kelly. Yeah. So that's this is the, <laughs> so this is the thing we bring this up because she has this, and it's the perfect case study for what we're talking about here because Megan Kelly has written a book in which Donald Trump is mentioned and yes. mentioned in a less than flattering way. So it's like the perfect example of of you know how this man behaves when people write things in book form that he doesn't necessarily love or out there. And specifically um you know she she writes two things. The first yeah. thing is that uh Donald Trump or Donald Trump yeah. Donald Trump threatened to quote unleash my b- beautiful Twitter account against you. And then he said, and I still may. I'm going to unleash my beautiful Twitter account uh, on him. Maybe. I'm <laughs> actually pretty excited about that. Uh, <laughs> but then yeah. the craziest part is like, okay, we know that Donald Trump threatens people at 3 a.m. with, yeah, yeah, with yeah, his yeah. Twitter right, account. Right, like, right, right. we get this. But that's not where this ended. So there's a there's an anecdote about her, her you know, she, she moderated – uh, one of one of the debates. Yeah. Um, she so has this. Yeah. She has this story about being picked up by this enthusiastic okay, so driver. Let's, let's read yeah, it. Read so it. the reason the reason we have this is because the New York Times the New York Times ran its review of Megyn Kelly's memoir this week, which is called uh, "Settling for More." Or that's su- very that's very similar to your not, memoir, which is good, not great. Good, not yeah. great. <laughs> um, no, her, excuse me. Her book is called her book is called Settle for More. Um, it's a you know, it's a book coming out very soon. Um, and she, yeah, there's this anecdote in here that that really is kind of crazy. So let, I mean, I'm going to read the paragraph here. Um, her story became more Byzantine on the day of the debate. Miss Kelly writes, she woke up feeling great. Then an overzealous, suspiciously enthusiastic driver picked her up to take her to the convention center. He insisted on getting her coffee, though she'd reportedly declined his offer. Once it was in her hand, she drank it, and within 15 minutes, she was violently ill, vomiting so uncontrollably that it was unclear if she'd be able to help moderate that evening. 
It was so bad that she kept a trash pail beneath her desk throughout the debate just in case. Megyn Kelly was poisoned. Well, okay. Let's. She's well, no, okay. So <laughs> and that's I'm, the thing, right? It's like, like so she's that's written what she's this, implying. Well, that is what she's implying because she's set up this hand. She's written this passage here, and let's. I mean, the framework. Let's remember what it is here, right? Is she was preparing to moderate that first uh, Republican uh, primary debate, and the reason she felt like maybe she was under harm is because Trump had gotten word that. That infamous first question she was going to ask him was going to be very pointed and aggressive and about his behavior towards women. It's where we got the blood coming out of her wherever line in retrospect. Um, but, yeah, so she she writes this thing leading up um, where she's painted this picture of a driver who's acting unnaturally, who's buying her coffee, who that then makes her sick. I mean you, you're getting you're, – if you read between the lines even a little bit, you get what she's saying. But – but then yeah, and this she is the tweeted. Part. This, is the, this is the part. So before you say this is the part where I get worried about what a Trump presidency means for people talking about Trump because. So then she took umbrage with the New York Times <coughs> review, which which quoted like which quoted yeah. her content. And she yeah. said, also, for the record, I believe the reason I got sick the day of the first debate was I contracted a stomach virus just as Rand Paul did. Yeah. So basically she's hedging. She's doing exactly, honestly, like what Donald Trump did the entire debate where he called on the Second Amendment people to take care of Hillary Clinton, you know, where, where he made all of these crazy things and then had a plausible deniability. Yeah. And said, oh, no, I didn't do that. So then the entire... The entire structure of the, the the media and the content that people are consuming is all inference. Yeah. So it's – I mean and that's the thing. So the question then is is why does she feel like she can't say a thing she believes? And then we get into this idea that she's been – you know, throughout her memoir we learn, um, you know, she was receiving threatening phone calls. She was receiving – her, you know, Roger Ailes, her boss at Fox, was harassing her. Um, you know, Trump was, you know, attacking her on the Internet, was attacking her through her phone. I mean, this is someone who went after her because she decided to cross him. And so now she's written this book and it's, um, you know, she includes this anecdote. I mean, it's like I said, if she really thought – if she, and this gets to your point about hedging and what I'm going to call subversiveness, right? And this is – and the reason we bring this up as a case study is because I think you and I both think – that this sort of behavior, this sort of writing about Trump without actually writing about him, it's going gonna, it's gonna to become kind of the norm because there's no other way to do it. Because if you say something directly, you might, you might catch hell, you know? You're you, not even might. You're going to <clears throat> catch hell. I mean, it hell. just seems like, I don't know. So it just, it just sure seems like, you know, the new, the new practice as it comes, you know, to talking about our president who's by very nature of the job, the most public figure we have. Um, it's going to be really – it's going to be tricky to do that maybe. But, but this also – like if, if this isn't scary enough, Eric, you, you were telling me earlier that this wasn't the scariest thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, OK. So I – I mean we bring this – we bring this Megyn Kelly thing up and we bring this idea that he's um, – he has a very well-documented history of going after people who have kind of discussed him and that – how that could potentially play into – um, the way in which people approach writing about him or writing about his movement and such. Um, I guess I'm going to run a little counter to that and say, 
that's not the bit of his relationship with reported fact that I find to be the most worrisome. I mean, honestly, because I, it's like I said, I mean, I just think that he's going to get into the job. He's going to start, you know, I, I mean, I think we're all seeing that it's a lot more work than he expected. I mean, you see these shots of him in the White House. He looks miserable because he doesn't want to fucking be there because it's not a fun job because it's not campaigning. It's sitting. It's not TV. No, it's it's like <laughs> every shot you see of him, it looks like he doesn't like he didn't understand what he was getting himself into. So my point is I don't know that he's going to have much of an attention span left for petty libel suits over every little book writer that decides to say something about him. But um, the thing that I think has wider implications for, you know, the book publishing world and for um, his administration is is just this idea that um, we reached a point where Donald Trump got to decide what was true and what wasn't. And he did that because every time something came out about him, whatever it was, whether, you know, however reported it was, however corroborated these stories that came out about him, whether it was, um, you know, the women that he assaulted or, you know, the tax fraud or whatever, whatever these things were, all he ever did was denied, denied, denied. And, and if he does it long about, enough. And lied about it and lied about it and lied about it and had his surrogates go on all, you know, you had Rudy Giuliani and all these people getting on, you know, whatever news network and just denying, denying, denying. And eventually they would win the battle of attrition with our attention spans and we would move on. And I mean, he got he got away with not releasing his tax records. Well, like he, he, <laughs> it's just that. And so, you know, I mean, he got away with a million with a million different things. But like the part that's alarming is that what he really got away with was being able to decide what was a fact and what wasn't. And it's like if you can if you can do that, then there there's going to be real problems with the manner in which people are going to be able to effectively talk about this man in in coming years. And I don't know. I I, I see that more as a problem than him like putting you know you know there's all these like you know scary you know hypotheticals about him like you know throwing journalists in jail and like I don't know bringing lawsuits against everybody, which he, you know, has a propensity for doing, but I just don't see him having the sheer capacity to be interested in once he's once he's president. But it's like this part where a writer could present something as true and then he could and his, you know, team could Completely make delegitimize could, af- could effectively make untrue. That that strikes me as more harmful for like serious, you know, and I, you know, thinking about books, you know, serious nonfiction, you know, the political writing, the journalism, the the sort of books that might come out. It's like if none of us can agree anymore on what a fact is, then then we're in we're in a lot of trouble. There's there's this old journalism adage that that I think is really, really important to remember here and speak truth to power. Yeah. You know, and that that really is the goal of the free press. It's to present things that aren't necessarily what what the the powerful entities in in a country and in a society yeah. want. You know, it's it's to speak truth. Yeah. And I'm you know, with with the the hedging example and and with that kind of subversiveness well, being so required. So let's talk about that for a second. Um and I don't I don't mean to interrupt you, but I don't think we explored that quite as well as we should. So I think what we're both saying here with this kind of Kelly example of writing an anecdote but then saying that it isn't even though she's implying it, um, it sounds like you and I are both expecting subversiveness and sort of 
the art of implication as opposed to directly stating things to be kind of the lingua franca of how we're going to start talking about a lot of this because there's no because now that we've reached a point where the truth isn't the truth where and you can no longer speak truth doc- to power yeah, we're document we're documented facts don't hold any weight in the eyes of you know anyone you know the answer is going to be to say things less directly it's going to be to imply things and i think that that has a certain like that motif and that mode of storytelling and that's that mode of writing could play a real play a real role in the sort of books we see that come out that are in any way related to our current president but i'm i'm you know honestly i'm a little bit worried about that i'm a little bit worried because that subversive method subversive method of writing requires a lot of work and time and attention on the reader's part you know it's not like reading a newspaper article where you just get the fact it's indirect yeah and so what I'm worried about is, is, you know, that that normalization, that by yeah. spending so much time trying to wade through the bullshit, is that that's actually going to harm the, you know, our, our conception of the truth and, and, and harm well, so the time, various structures. The time, the yeah. time, time is the thing because he bet. When in all these, you know, this campaign's approach to the truth bet on one thing that we couldn't pay attention long enough, and and he won. He lied. He, you know, every every time something came up, he said no, 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 and he kept saying no, 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 and then eventually we ran out of, we stopped caring about it. We ran out of an attention span for it, and we and we moved on. And your point, and this is, the, I think, the next thing we're going to talk about. Is this idea of normalization, right? And this is, um, you know, this is important, and we'll t- bring it up here in a second. But just to finish this bit about his relationship to the press, it's like if he can win this war of attrition with the truth every single time it gets brought up. I mean, that's that's going to be problematic, and it's going to come down to writers having to figure out how to cut through a lot of this culture that we've created, where nobody believes anything. That ever gets said by any media member. I mean, what he just hired, you know, his chief strategist now is is Steve Bannon, who, among many many monstrous things that he is, is also just is he's the manager of a fake news site. You know, it's like this is how he intends like this campaign technique of just lying about like basic facts. It's not going to stop. I mean, that's the nature of the campaign, and that's going to be the nature of the administration and. It's going to fall toward people writing things down to actually stick with it, to not get deterred by, you know, whatever form of intimidation or denial, you know, comes our way. And it's it's going to pose a lot of problems, I think. But um, so the second part of this conversation I think we want to have, and this is the bit that I think resonates the most with me, um, is this idea of normalization because I think that publishing – sits at a really precarious spot as it relates to the normalization of Donald Trump. And when we say that, when we use that term, um, I'm sure anyone who is paying attention on Twitter or is reading things or is doing anything that is engaging in any sort of liberal media um, right now, they're hearing, you know, that's the warning, right, is we can't normalize him. We can't make him this 
normal president who— We can't make this situation seem like it's the status quo. Basically, we cannot get used to this, right? Because the second that we get used to this is the second that our moral standards drop that— It's the second that it becomes okay. Yeah, it's it's when we start accepting some of these just ludicrous things that are sure to come as as fact. And— Publishing sits at a really at a really strange spot because the presidency has always had a really interesting relationship with um, with book publishing. You know, there's always uh, I don't know whatever. reissues of their past books. Yeah, exactly. So it's like there's always you know ever almost every president at some point if if just the campaign book they wrote to you know kind of fuel and fund and you kind of give a central message to their campaign. They usually have a book written, right? And like when Obama was elected, every bookstore, you know, threw up the audacity of hope. Two hundred copies of the you know audacity I mean? on of the, hope. On their front on their front shelf because they wanted to present it. They said, This is your president, this is the book he's written, go out and buy it. And so if I said to you, Laura, every bookstore, all the little independent liberal bookstores, are they gonna all throw up the art of the deal? You know what I mean? My favorite like, are they is... going to throw up Think Big and Kick Ass? Because he wrote that book, too. Is, is that, that actually a book? <laughs> Think yes. Big and Kick Ass? I once bought... The, so on Think Big and Kick Ass, I once in high school... I think I, was, I think it was high school. I once bought that for a friend as like a gag birthday <laughs> gift. He was like this really... He was kind of this really quiet, like... He was really into like alternative rock. He had glasses and like really big hair with like some, you know, a little color in it. He was kind of... He was like kind of a pretty artsy kid, and, I, and we bought him. We bought him think big and kick ass as kind of this very funny contrast <laughs> to his personality. Little did we know that we were we were funding the 2016 presidential run. So but, my my big question is, yeah. you know, like every year when people are interviewing Donald Trump and asking him, like as the president, like what was your favorite book this year? Like is he going to say the art of the deal? Well, that's the thing. Like, right? Is it's he like, going to say his own book? So that's that's what we were saying. Is that. The presidency has an, has a real relationship with book publishing. You know, the president is always, um, it's like like you just said, is asked to release a reading list. You know, often it's like, the last what? book that I wrote was Obama's favorite book last year. Right. Or read. that I read. Yeah. I didn't write it. You wrote Obama's. Wow, good for you. Lauren um, Groff's <laughs> The Fates and Furies, now written by Laura Zatz. Yeah, but like, but that's but that's the thing, right? Is like the president often weighs in in those kind of fun throwaway cultural moments of you know here's the reading list from the white house or here's you know some author in it like remember um obama interviewed marilyn robinson at the white house and that was such a powerful moment for you know so many of us who really enjoy marilyn robinson's work and it was like wow this is such a cool thing that she gets to do this um is trump gonna release a reading list is does he does can Trump read? Can he read? I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, like, I know he can read, but like, can he read I a book? I don't know that he can read. Um, but um, serious question, folks. But like, my, but you see, you see the point we're getting at here is that there's a relationship, you know. And what I'm worried about, and when I talk about things like normalization, is he's gonna, you know, we're gonna use all these things. We're gonna, t- you know, book publishing is gonna, I think that these things are gonna happen and someone, you know, in his staff is gonna throw together a reading list and so, you, you know. You think gonna- there's gonna be a kid's book about how he got, like. <laughs> well, that's that was the other thing, right? Like, there's there's these children's books, too, that are often related to presidents, right? There's all these, um, you know, chapter books and things about the American presidency, about, you know, the quick little facts, you know, the people, um, 
you know, I, I think there is, you know, there's like a children's book of, you know, how Barack Obama grew up and became president because it's like this nice story of, you know, hope and, you know, diversity and all these things. It's like, are the there audacity be, of hope. <laughs> are there going to be children's books about Donald Trump? So you know? here's okay. So here's and, here's my take on that. Yeah, it's my please. one like bright light of hope please. in all of the research that I've done for yeah. this this episode. Yeah. I don't think there will be. I don't think there will be because children's literature is always leading the way with. Um, I would say liberalism, but that's not true. It's just like with being like good people, specifically with regards yeah. to. Um, Telling the truth and ha- making sure that everyone is represented so that there's, sure. you know, like diversity in yeah. in the content. Um, and we've already I say we because I, I take part in Kidlet as as an agent who represents yeah. middle grade and young yeah. adult. But we've already kind of had these watershed moments over the past couple of years that have essentially tested our mettle. And I think that the decisions are the right ones. So. You know, one of the one of the big ones that comes to mind is um, January 2016. Scholastic published a book called A Birthday Cake for George Washington. Yeah. Basically, it's it's this picture book that it's a historical picture book that tells the story of Hercules, who was a slave that was the chef for George Washington in the White House. Okay. And it, it basically shows Hercules and his daughter making making George Washington a birthday cake without sugar. And uh-huh. about and about this, you know, how they're taking pride in this. Sure. And it shows them basically happy and smiling on every page. And what's kind of not included in the story is that Hercules escaped. Hercules ran away as a slave. And yeah. and and you know, whether or not you're a slave in the White so House the point, doesn't Okay, so. so so the point is that it it kind of has this revisionist history that makes it not so bad to be a slave. It's a highly problematic book, but what happened to it? This is your point. They pulled it. They pulled it. Scholastic. It got, it got shut down. They, that's they, the point. They, there was this book. It was a. It was poorly representing, you know, slavery for what it it's was. It's no longer it for white, sale. If you Google it, the only thing that shows up is the articles about it. Also, just a few days ago, like right before the election happened, there was. Um, uh, kind of what can best be termed a shitstorm on Twitter. Uh, Harlequin Teen, so we're talking about YA now, has a book that was scheduled for January 2017. It's called The Continent. It's by a woman named Kira Drake. Basically, it's this YA kind of science fantasy story about about a, a young girl who is, you know, gifted a, a tour of this country for her 16th birthday and her plane crashes and basically she's this only survivor in this country or in this in this area, land, et cetera, whatever, left stranded. And she's basically left to survive amongst these two tribes who are savages. Yeah. And essentially it's these are people of color. Like these are essentially Native Americans who are called savages. And, and you right. know, the author the author came back and said, you know, just kidding. Like, they're actually supposed to be Urukai from Tolkien, but, like, those aren't people and these are people. Um, and basically it was this, this huge, huge People mess. got mad about it. And what happened? Uh, they postponed it. Okay. So I'm not – so we're not sure if they're going to pull it, but basically they completely stopped the publishing date. They stopped it. They moved it. They're 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 not putting this out right away. They're addressing the issues. Okay, so you're let me let me ask you this. 
you're bringing these two books up as examples of and that you're pointing to as good examples of instances in which children's literature, or, you know, young adult literature, or whatever these books are, as moments in which the publishing industry displayed a, a moral conscience and was like, hey, this isn't good enough. We we need to we need to be done with this. This is not and, good for, you know, like if this is and, if this book is being read by a group of kids in Philadelphia in the inner city and there it's 90 percent black classroom, like showing smiling slaves is like probably not a great idea. Or to anyone. I don't or think it has anyone. anything to do with the inner city. I think it's just there's truth and there isn't. And showing a book with but that's separate from from what I think I want to get at here, which is that I think that maybe you're giving major publishers too much credit, to be honest. I mean, to me, it's when I think about normal the normalization of Trump, and it is going to happen. I mean, we can all sit around and um, talk about how we can never accept this as normal, and we can all we must always be vigilant, and we must always make sure that we're holding his feet to the fire and everything he makes, but that's just simply not how most of America is going to react. And it's I don't think the big publishers are going to react that way. I think you're going to see the puff biographies of Donald of President Donald Trump. You're going to see the kids books where he's in there. You're going to see the chapter books where it's his smiling face with his little fun little presidential facts for the elementary school class. You're going to see all that stuff. And it's I don't know. And I think the reason that maybe that's, you know, surprising is because there's long been this assumption that mainstream or all publishing but mainstream publishing, mainstream commercial, big five publishing included, is this, um, is like vaguely liberal. And Which I, th- I think is true. Well, so, <laughs> well, well, I don't know that it's true. I know that the, I know that the people working in it are true. Well, are, okay. So, so but, here's, that's why I think, that's why I think it's true. I think because at the end of the day, you know, like this is a business that's focused on selling books to people and making money. Right. So, but but the fact of the matter is is that this is also a business that's centered around art and books are sold to editors who acquire them that that in some way connect with with a work and i think that because this industry is inherently personal our philosophies our our own political background become become a political statement in the work that we do yeah but the thing of it is is that I, I feel like mostly, you know, a lot of this like kind of vague liberalism that we've seen displayed by, you know, the books that are available, mostly that's a product of the market. Is people, you know, they've there's kind of this implicitly liberal book publishing that happens from mainstream. We're gonna get we're gonna get to like um we're gonna get to presses and imprints with specific editorial visions in a little bit here. But like in terms of just like the major commercial houses, I don't have any faith that these are gonna be people that display any sort of moral conscience when it comes to um, deciding whether to publish books for a book for a book market that has now changed for a first you know I think what we're talking about here is that something new has become mainstream okay well and let's, I think let's that, talk about well, how, how the readership has changed hold on a second is these you know I, I think we give publishing a lot of credit for this like editorial vision of being this like moral thing it's like we can publish all this stuff and I just don't think it's true and I think that um, you know this last Tuesday what we saw was a a bookmark you know I mean we saw a lot of things but one of the things we did is we saw a ideology present itself as a viable book market you know these are people that are around they're here they want to read books and there's just no way that 
most major book publishers aren't going to publish things that are right for those people. And that, you know, a market a market has presented itself, and that's all this industry needs to me. And that's how and that's how normalization happens. Normalization happens when content producers like book publishers decide that these are people that need to be reached that will buy our, that will buy our stuff if we present them something they like. And the second we start doing that is when Donald Trump starts becoming the normal 45th president of the United States. And I think that's absolutely going to happen. And I think with him, what you're going to see is a lot of those ideas, you know, that we found so alarming throughout this campaign, a lot of that's going to be more mainstreamed. I mean, a lot of people, you know, I mean, the Ann Coulters, the Steve Bannons, you know, these people are, these are writers who, I guess Bannon's not a writer, but he's a content cultivator, whatever the fuck you want to call him. He's a monster, but... um, (laughs) It's these people aren't this and this is maybe what my main point of this whole episode is, is these people aren't fringe anymore. These people are mainstream and mainstream commercial publishing is not above catering to the mainstream. They're just not. So what and you're saying is that like the the fact that I, that an idea is is common and is widespread and is that's all they need is, is, is enough to con. Yes. Okay. Like I and, and we want to have this faith that like editors at. Um, I don't know. I've worked at a press where we published conservative stuff because we thought it would sell, and we're gonna, you know, we'll get into you know conservative imprints and stuff here in a minute. But it's like, I don't know. I don't see any reason why you know Simon and Schuster or you know General Random House or like Penguin Books or like any of these like main, just like the big flagship commercial publishers, why they wouldn't try to cater to these you know sixty million people who. All have children of you know what I mean. It's like these are people whose ideas have been validated by the process of our you know of our democracy, and that's shitty because these are ideas that we all agree are scary. But like you're gonna see, I don't, you're gonna see a lot of stuff that used to be on the conservative shelf now on the front table. I think is my point. So and, I think this brings up a really interesting point that you know, and we touched on this in a previous episode, but. Hillary Clinton's campaign book was published by Simon and Schuster, the main imprint, like Simon right. and Schuster proper. Donald Trump's campaign book was published by Threshold Editions, which is a conservative imprint of Simon and Schuster. Right. So, what well, you're saying well, is that you. he's going to move. Well, let me ask you a question. Yes. Based on that, okay. that's an interesting point because we we had we did touch on that in a previous episode that the same publisher, Simon and Schuster, published both. The Clinton and the Trump campaign books, which to me is all you need to know about whether or not I guess um, that's a good point. Uh, big five houses have any sort of political conscience. I don't think they do, and I'm, I'm not necessarily sure that they should, but they definitely don't to me. And you're going to start seeing a lot more of these conservative ideas in like kind of that political nonfiction sphere. But the point is, let me ask you this: Does the gen- the genrefication of conservative literature? Does that need to happen anymore? And what I mean by genrefication of conservative literature is we can both agree, I think, and most people will agree, that the conservative book, the expressly conservative book, is a specific type that's kind of been quarantined. You know, there are imprints for it. There's Sentinel. There's Broadside. I know you have a, you have a few more. There's Threshold down. Editions, right. Crown Forum, and these are all from Big Five. Right. These are books. But the point is that conservative books typically, you know, that are written by notable conservative or right-wing thinkers it, they happen at they happen from very specific subsections of publishers right and it's because they you know conservative literature has been up until now i think 
genreified. It's treated as something separate from just mainstream. It's treated as um, like any genre, you know, it contains a certain amount of traits. It's written for a very specific audience that's going to buy it because of its, you know, these genre tropes. Um, you know, so what are, what are the tropes then? I mean, right, it's it's a vague amount of polemicism. It's a certain amount of sort of that. I okay, mean, so I want to yeah. I want to stop a minute on yeah. that polemicism yeah. because – so I, I was researching, and my my browser history will never forgive me, but I was researching <laughs> a lot of conservative imprints, and I found some information from the founder of Broadside Books. So Broadside Books is the last big conservative imprint to be founded by the Big Five. It was founded in 2011. The rest of them were founded in the beginning of the 2000s. That makes sense. After, yeah, which makes sense. You know, it was after 9-11. Yep. It was when George W. Bush yep. was still in office. This one came a lot later, mm-hmm. and I find it really interesting that the the publisher, a, na- a man by the name of Bello, said, um, what I intend to do is uphold a standard of intellectual seriousness on the right. They should be written in a way that they are serious, soberly argued, well-researched, and make a respectable case, whether you agree or disagree. And I think that that's really interesting because I feel like that's very much gone by the wayside. Okay, so I, I think you're right. Name the... Just off the top of your head, name some conservative authors. Like, Ann Coulter. Right. So let's let's go through the list, right? I mean, it's people like Ann Coulter. It's people like Glenn Beck. It's Bill O'Reilly. It's These are not people, I think, on whatever side you're on. These are not academics. Who are making, well, you know, as this man described that he wants for his own, you know, this is a conservative man talking about publishing conservative books. I don't think even he would look at the books we just talked about and describe them as well-reasoned and, you know, attempting to be kind of respected on all sides and, like, making kind of a case. That's that's not what these are. What are they? They're screeches. There's, like, they're these, I don't know, they're manifestos. They're about all kinds of crazy they're shit. They're to I appeal mean, to the people who it, elected a man who was on their primetime TV on a reality and show. And so my point is that I was making in that last segment, and I think what we're seeing here is that's a lot more... Two weeks ago, that was a lot less mainstream than it is now. And I think, you know, and I know that sounds kind of like an arbitrary point, but that arbitrary point did happen, and it's a major one. I mean, the fact that we elected this guy does mean that there's a certain validation in the American culture for a lot of ideas I think a lot of us would find alarming. And, you know, whereas you were seeing some of these books kind of sectioned off, you know, on the conservative shelf, you're going to see them, you know, everywhere. And it's going to bring in a lot of stuff. And... I don't know. I think um, I think it's, I mean, one thing I do think it's going to do, it's going to create a really interesting um, it's going to create a really interesting counterculture. And yeah. a lot of things that we considered to be mainstream mainstream are now going to be separate. I mean, one thing. So we read um, we get the phrase, you know, I we should give credit where credit is due. The, um, the phrase the genrefication of uh, conservative literature is a phrase we got from from a mother from a mother Jones article. from several years ago. Yeah, from a guy a guy named Kevin Drum wrote this article called "How the Right Wing Bubble uh, How the Right Wing Publishing Bubble Finally Burst." It's it's a nice piece. Um, it's from what 20... 2014. Um, but one thing that it talks about is that a lot of the re- a lot of the way this happened, where conservative literature went from being um, 
more mainstream to being something far right just to its own genre, you know, in the way that it has to be kind of sectioned off and treated as its own entity as opposed to being integrated into a publisher's main list is because of what Obama did to these people. They made them crazy. I mean, conservatives hate Obama more than they hate anybody. And they think, you know, they what happened was a lot of these books got written that just sound, that are just angry, right? That are just, you know, they're shouting and they're wild and they're these manifestos that are written for a very specific audience that's going to buy all of them. Like, I mean, in a lot of ways, it has a lot of parallels to a lot of other types of, of genres. But... Is that let me ask you this? Is that going to happen on the left? Because what I mean, we just you know we just elected a president that um, that every, everyone on the left and I think a lot of people in the center um, <laughs> find to be find to be repulsive. Totally abhorrent. I think it's totally going to happen. Gonna, I think we we're going to have left wing polemicists. Okay, so we're going to get these kind of left wing books. And so my question is: Is that going to be genreified like right wing books was, or or is it going to remain mainstream? Because right now you can write a liberal book. You can write. Um, I don't know, a very, you know, left-wing argument for a lot of different things and have it be on your front list. You know who's a great example of that, actually? Let me ask you this. In Trump's America, yeah. is the Ta-Nehisi Coates book oh, genre shit. literature? No. Okay. Or is it main literature? No, I don't and think I, it and is. I, and I love – because, I mean, why isn't that book a – you know, why wouldn't that qualify as now, – now that liberalism is as diminished as we just learned that it was – why isn't that genre? Why isn't that genre nonfiction? So I have two reasons. And I think I mean I'm not sure that it is any. I'm just kind of thinking. It's like we said we're kind of thinking through this aloud on air. But like that that book suddenly is far less. It's got a lot less mainstream yeah. than it was two weeks ago. You so, know what I mean? Yeah. So okay. So I I have a couple of thoughts on that. Yeah. The the first is is quite simply that that. If this election has done nothing, it's proved to us that work with content, that work with products made specifically for, you know, the broadest amount of Americans that we can have. Yeah. That the loudest voice in the room wins. It's not I don't think it's any more about whether it's left or whether it's right. I think it's just the person that yells the loudest. Yeah. And so I think I think that that left wing, that far left polemicism, like I, I truly think that that's that's how people are going to respond. Yeah. Um, I guess the my second my second thought on the Tahanisi codes like Americana argument, like if Americana were to come out now, would it be mainstream or not? My guess, and this is completely a guess, but I'm saying probably yes, simply because publishing is slow and. In the four years that it takes to have the next presidential election, there are only eight major book sure, seasons. Sure. You know, there's there's fall and spring. Uh, that sounds – I mean it sounds – you know, when you put it like that, it sounds sure, but man, it's going to be <laughs> it's a gonna long It's going to be so long. long. Four years of books. So here's, here's one thing I'm worried it, about though, Eric. Yeah. I'm – and I guess I'm I'm worried about it in, in some sense, but it's also I think it's a really important part and it gets to a really important point about how publishing works. So we've been talking about publishing very much from a top down sort of thing, you know, publishers yeah. publishing books and they're making editorial decisions yeah. and whether or not they have a vision that's going to lead yeah. what publishing becomes. And I think yeah. we're ignoring the idea of the grassroots culture yeah. and the grassroots power the that people. publishing has given. So, so you know, like in any business, we're talking about readers. We're now. talking about we're readers. We're not talking about. So now we're shifting this. 
we're not talking about publishers and editors and like professionals working in Manhattan. We're talking about people who yes. buy books. So yeah. so in any in any business, of yeah. course, you know, the the customer is always right. The customer is the one that that makes the customer was fucking wrong in this case, but like <laughs> Well, ju- ju- okay. So yes, yes it was. Uh more like the electoral college was fucking wrong, but anyway. Um so 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 you know the the customer is the one that ultimately comes up you know, yeah. like their their purchasing power makes the decisions at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, but doesn't but, that so doesn't that speak to my point about main big five mainstream publishing from earlier though? I guess sure. Yeah. But but at, you know, but there's also there's also a lot of spaces in publishing that speak to that purchasing power that gives the reader a lot more control rather than just you know putting their money where their mouth is. Yeah. So I have an example, Please. and it's example from 2014. Please. And this is what I think we're going to see a lot more of. So there's a romance novel, which we all know is Eric's favorite thing in the entire world. Absolutely. Um, there was a romance novel that was published in 2014. Yeah. In 2015, it was nominated for two major awards. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in the romance world, they're called Rita's. Uh-huh. It's an RWA award. RWA is the Romance Writers of America. It's basically like their big award. Yeah. Um, this book is called For Such a Time, and it is is a retelling of Esther centering on a romantic affair between a Nazi officer and a half-Jewish woman in a concentration camp. So the big thing is, you know, like, I don't know how familiar you are with the story of Esther, but the story of Esther is basically, like, this woman's faith... Like, she pretends to not be Jewish, and she ends up, like, saving all the people, and her faith keeps her going. Right. This character, spoiler alert... Converts to Christianity and was saved. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, so you know, like as a as a as a uh, Jew, this is just absolutely right, abhorrent. Right. But but this book was nominated for two Ritas, and I think this is Talk a really about important that nomination point. Nomination process, though, because it, yeah, this is a really important point. Like whether or not this book is like I find personally abhorrent. That's not the point here. The right. point is you, okay. is that this book was brought to the public light and became this huge, huge phenomenon because Rita's are a peer-reviewed award. There is no vetting of content before a book can be entered in. Mm-hmm. The books are entered and not nominated, so they're entered by anybody. Yeah, you know what this fucking sounds like? And these books are judged by fellow romance authors. Okay, so so they're so they're judged by people that don't make decisions in this industry. Okay, so that's that's the I, that's the perfect parallel for what just happened, then, right? Yes, because absolutely. What did we do? All the pe- like, if the if the general election was held in any sort of way where you know the professionals you know got to make the choices, if it was the you know if it was the critics, if it was the people in the industry, if it was those people who had to decide this award, this book would never get through. Oh, right? of course not. Because everyone because who works it's awful. At, because everyone who works in publishing can dismiss it out of hand as repugnant. But what happened? The people, you know, it got turned over to the people and the people realized that they could, you know, write in a review that there would be a relative level of anonymity to do so and they could have what they want without having to answer to all these um, you know, New York elitists, they picked the fucking book. They picked it twice. They picked they picked they the Nazi picked book. They picked it twice. And so my point, like, there's a readership out here. And, like, these these kind of books, and this book, I mean, you know, it's, it's obviously, you know, being treated as bad by us, but it's being anytime, I just think it speaks again to one of the main stories of this election, right, is there's such a gulf between what so many people actually want and believe and what 
these, I don't know, this kind of insular professional class, you know, thinks is good. And I, I'm one like I'm one of those people who thinks it's good. You we're know, both, like we're both I mean, those I'm, but I'm just and I think that this I think this Nazi book is terrible. But my point is that there is a there is a market for this Nazi book, and you're going to see a lot of stuff that comes out that's a lot like that because all of a sudden all those views that these people thought they had to be hidden about they don't have to be hidden. They can say that they want this book. It, you know, their candidate won. I mean, it's not it's not beyond the pale. It's not beyond the pale to publish a book that aligns with the politics of the president of the United States. That's not that's not like on its face. That is not an idea that is that bizarre. And I think it's going to happen. I think we're going to see a lot of really, really stuff, a lot of really offensive stuff. I mean, stuff that people with a liberal you know, sensibility find to be just atrocious. And I and I guess that's why maybe my biggest point is I think that. There's a lot, you know, we can sit around and talk about how, you know, publishing is run by liberals. All the editors are living in New York. They're all, you know, these college-educated people who were English majors and all this stuff. But I think just based on the people who are buying the books, there's going to be a certain amount of a shift to right. There's going to be there's going to be a small shift right. And what it's going to do, and this is something I want to talk about, is it's going to make a lot of things that we've – a lot of publishers in the instance I want to refer to here – it's going to make a lot of things that we thought were kind of just vaguely normal and liberal and kind of, you know, interesting and intellectual. Um, it's going to make them countercultural because not every publisher is going to move right. Some of them are going to stick are going to stay where they are because they've got cohesive editorial visions while the mainstream commercial industry moves. Like if you take houses like, you know, the few I jotted down here, Melville House, FSG, Akashic Books, Knopf, Tin House, you know, sort of the more, you know, literary publishers, the ones who are kind of very proudly – publish books, you know, they're smaller, obviously. Um, these presses now, I think, are far more of an outlier to the culture than they were a couple weeks ago. And I think that's going to have really profound effects. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see what they do now that they're not aligned with the politics of the age. You know, I mean, we're going to see some really interesting books. And it's that move right though that i maybe if there's one thing that i'm worried about in this you know that for people to take from this episode it's that i think publishing by virtue of who it is that's buying the books and publishing as we've said is all about who's buying the books it's going to move a little bit and when it moves what ideas get normalized what things what platitudes that would have been offensive you know a year ago to say are going to become okay to put in a in a children's book, in a middle grade book. You know, these kind of vague things that just kind of get scoffed at. You know, we were talking earlier, and I know we're running long here, but this is important. You know, um, there are some things you can write in, like, you know, the book for third graders about the America, right, about the United States, you know, whatever little book with some pictures in it. It's like the idea you would – that's the kind of book where you would see the sentence – you know, diversity is America's greatest strength, right? You'd get some line about immigrants and melting pots and things like that, right? And that would just be kind of... I think it's called a salad bowl now. Oh, is it? Yes, because melting pot made everybody the same. And I think that they're using the term salad (laughs) bowl now because there's all distinct pieces. Oh, wow. Fun fact. No, I'm into that. I didn't didn't mean to use the wrong term. (laughs) Um, But like... 
but that kind that kind of sentiment, right, is one that you would expect to see in a book for an elementary school kid yes. who's reading. And it's about, a reasonable it's a reasonable statement. Right. Yeah, but what about now? You know what I'm saying? Like we just we just you know, sixty million people in the electoral college just told us that they don't think that's true. That just told us that actually, you know, this salad bowl that you're talking about, actually that's that's hurting us. That's what's making America not great. That diversity is not a strength, but rather something we need to overcome. You know, are those ideas suddenly going to start appearing in books as just kind of common platitudes about America? Because that's what worries me. Like, it's, you know, this normalization process we talk about, it happens through what through what gets published and read. And I, I have as much faith in the visions of the individual editors and those people that you do. I mean, we know these people. These are good people. They're working, um, I don't know, they're, they're working hard and they've got a certain level of decency to them. You know, they're cult- you know, they are by professional, you know, standards, culture critics. But like, I don't know. Like, there's a lot of reckoning to do here, and there's a lot of pushback that's going to have to happen. And there's I think- a lot of work that we as people in the industry have to do and a lot of work that consumers have to do. I yeah. mean, you know, like, and this is the probably the saddest thing about all of this is that I keep going back to this statistic from the Pew Research Center yeah. as, as, a, yeah, as yeah. a means of, of kind of making myself feel better about what might happen to publishing in the next four years. And it's, and it's this statistic, the typical American reads four books in 12 months. Yeah. That means that by the time Trump is done with his term, the typical American has read 16 books and that's not a ton of purchasing power. Like that is, that is not. And like, that's, that's like, true. That's honestly the 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 statistic that I keep going back to. Yeah. That's that's the one where I think, okay, we can keep good ideas out there by just like by simply consuming things and putting yeah. putting our money where where we put our Twitter accounts. Yeah. That's like and, true. and that, you know, like actually reading and consuming and thinking critically about things, like that ultimately is going to matter a lot because four books a year is not a lot. That is not a lot of money. You know, at, at some point, publishers are catering to these people because that's where a lot of them lie. But, you know, once they hit that four book threshold, you know, then then it's then it's up to us. It's up to us who read more books to, to make sure that we're convincing publishing to still publish the ones that we think are important. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's so I think that's so key. And I think that publishing over the last eight years, maybe even a little little longer, has had it easy in the sense that the tastes of the editors and the politics of the editors has aligned with what they view as decency and what they view as the American public wants. I don't know that that's necessarily true anymore. And what I think that that means is that these editors and these agents and these authors and all these people whose job it is to make books happen are going to have to be a lot more intentional about the things they decide to acquire, about the things they decide people want to read, about what it is they're putting into the world because that harmony between the things that New York publishing thinks is good and the things that people actually want to read, I think there's – I think that difference has just become apparent. And I think that the same way that all of us were surprised by 
the results of this election because all these people came out of the woodwork that none of us have ever engaged with at all because we're all in a stupid fucking bubble. Publishing has that same reckoning to do right now. And I think it has to do it, and I have faith that it can do it because it's a, I, you know, we give it a lot of shit, but I think it's a good industry, and I think it's, it's a lot of people who actually care about decency. And it's important. But, like, that doesn't mean that, that like, there is work to do, and there is, there is going to be a rush. You know, you're going to see it in editorial meetings. You know, what about this book for these people? What about this book that presents this sort of value? And you've got to be willing to say, well, maybe we should – place some sort of editorial vision on that book more than you'd have to in the past. And I just, I hope that it happens. And I think that in some instances it will, but it's not going to be a hundred percent. And that sort of, that normalization of this new political reality we're in, that's what I think that, um, that's where I get the most kind of scared, I guess. But, um, we're going to keep working at it and we're hoping that you keep working at it. In whatever way that means for you. Well, that's what we're here for. You know, I mean, it's the one thing that publishing is, is good at is it, it talks to itself a lot. You know, it loves <laughs> it loves talking to itself. So if we can just like, you know, if people can just be aware, hey, you know, the readership has expressed something far different than we thought they wanted. What are we going to do about that? And what does that mean for the type of ideas we're putting out into the world? We need to be having those conversations. Yeah. And, and you know, and I think I think. On some level, conversations like this are a start. I think the conversations you have with your families, the conversations you have online, the conversations you have with yeah. your your agents or your writers, your editors or whoever you're coming into contact with, even even fellow readers, even on Goodreads, yeah. even in person. You know, I think I think I think that's really important. Yeah. And it's it's a it's an interesting time. And you know, we're gonna we're gonna keep coming back and we're gonna keep touching on these as as news develops as changes develop as we're even either proven wrong or proven right yeah but we're not going to do that our next episode though we're going to like fuck around and like hit the gong a bunch and like i'll read 50 shades of gray or something because oh would you that's you know what that's what we'll do we'll do that next (laughs) show but like i I meant we're at the end of this now and i was i was hoping i was hoping we'd laugh more and some things you just sometimes you just don't get to um but that you know we're still here. We're going to keep talking about the things that matter, and we're going to make sure we get we get some jokes off, too. So, Yeah. Well, anyway, I'd, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us. I know Eric and I have been talking about this episode since last Tuesday, and it's really important to us. And, and as people interested in publishing, I hope it's important to you. And I just want to express our heartfelt thanks for sticking with us for yeah. this hour plus of – of rambling and ideas and processing <laughs> and and I hope it helps. Yeah. And I hope that you have something to say and I hope that after this you can turn around and and you know do whatever it is that you feel is important to do with regards to publishing and yeah. with books and content. Yeah. All right. So on that note, again, thank you so much and we will see you on Thursday we'll see if you on you're Thursday a writer. If the first pages otherwise. If you're not a writer, we'll see you on Tuesday. All right. Bye. See you later.